Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionising the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by one of the most beautiful, incredible musicians. His name's Garrett Cato. Oh my God. I love your music, Garrett. It's absolutely beautiful. So I'm super stoked to have you on the podcast today. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. I appreciate you coming on. I was just looking at your Spotify, 1.7 million monthly listeners. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's like a, like it almost doesn't seem real to me either. So I just sort of uh, try to like not think about it too much if that makes sense <laughs> oh it's just a bit your voice is so beautiful the songs oh, are thank so, you. so beautiful they're just so nice to listen to 
and have them playing at home all the time. You're always on in the background at our house. Oh, thank so, you. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm one of those 1.7 million monthly listeners, and yeah, just absolutely beautiful. Where are you from, Garrett? I know you live locally here, but where were you born? I was born in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So that's pretty far away. And then I moved here in like 2010, around that time, to the Northern Rivers, and just sort of. Well, I fell in love with the place, but I also fell in love with someone. <laughs> so it kind of all kind of uh, snowballed into a life over here unexpectedly, really. And it just sort of, yeah, one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was house and kids and the whole shebang. So, yeah, I feel pretty fortunate to be able to call this area home. Yeah, it's beautiful, but so is British Columbia. We've done a bit of touring there with Ash and absolutely mm. love when he would go over there. I'm like, I'm coming, I'm coming on that one. Yeah, sorry, did you say Vancouver? Yeah, well, like if I'm going to be specific, it's a, it's a sort of a, a suburb outside called Port Coquitlam. I lived like really close to a river. There was just lots of mountains and things oh. like that. Like it was a really great place to grow up. Like I can't, mm. I went back last year and it really hit home because I was watching my kids run through the forest and stuff. And they were just so amazed by how big the trees were and how mm. everything was so crazy. And I was like, man, it was a crazy place to grow up. Like I just didn't, didn't realize. And then I feel like, I feel the same way about this area too, but it's just mm-hmm. a different type of wilderness. Like, you know, you go into the forest mm-hmm. and it's it is quiet. Yeah. You can't hear a single thing. And I find that so peaceful and relaxing. It's one of the only things I miss about mm-hmm. home the most is that I used to be able to go on a hike and you just have this, no birds, no no crickets, no nothing, just complete quiet. All you can hear is your footsteps on the leaves as yeah. you go through the trail. And it's just this real peace in the fresh air and, yeah, there's something about that for me that is really, uh, it just fills me up. So Yeah, 100%. I just remember like just going over there, not just in Canada, but even in, in California up with those giant sequoia trees and being mm. in the forest there. And I've never experienced quiet like it. It's amazing. Yeah, it just feels so, uh, I don't know, it just feels like you're you're really in it. You know, yeah. like you're really inside. There's no interruptions. Like you're just living inside of this forest, like as one, you know, and it's all like mm. kind of humming along in its own way. It feels really mm. cool. There is nothing like it. I've just been on a three-day hike with Mandy Nolan and Zenith, which wasn't so quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> with, with, you know, Mandy and there was a group of other people, but I did mm. manage to get up the front and just be silent. I just wanted to be silent and just walk in silence which was really lovely. And so just being in that for three days and then coming home, I said to Ash yesterday, I've got, I've got to go back into the bush. So my daughter had the day off. I said, let's go. We went up to Minion Falls just up there and just oh, sat nice. by the river and I actually got her to meditate for two minutes, which was great for a 10 year old. Wow. That's yeah. great. Well, that feels like 20 minutes for them. Yeah, I You know, know I always think of the, the scale of time with my kids and how yeah. I tell them to wait for five minutes. That's the equivalent of me probably waiting for like half an hour. In their yeah, like their perception of time, like it's everything's so much more excruciatingly mm. long. <laughs> I think so that's true. my theory. Yeah, that's yeah. my theory. So I try to have a lot of compassion towards them, like being impatient because their scale of time is so different than mine. So so true. Thanks for that. I probably need to hear that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it's beautiful. Nature is is so beautiful, and I think definitely Canadians, it's in your blood. It's just so there and so beautiful. So, Garrett, tell us a little bit about, you haven't had a drink for eight months, but you've been sort of very, very gradually weaning yourself off, I'd say, and got to Mm. a place where it's pretty much petered into nothingness. Where did it 
get to for you with alcohol. First of all, actually tell us where you started with alcohol and how it evolved for you and did it evolve for you? Yeah, well, it was sort of like, like, I guess it was like anything like in school, I was just really curious about like alcohol and even drugs and stuff. I was just, I, I felt like when I was a kid, I, I really wanted to grow up fast. I was one of those kids. I wanted to be an adult. I wanted to be cool. And I remember the first time I ever drank anything, it was my friend, Nick, who was a pretty bad influence because now he like, he's like a drug dealer, you know, in Vancouver. And this oh, kid shit. was pretty, yeah, he's pretty troubled. I got some crazy friends back home. Like I felt like my whole life back there might have been completely different. Anyways, that's another story. But um, he was sort of like, he had a, like a really troubled home, right? So I would hang out with him and we would go into my parents' like liquor cabinet and we would drink the brandy and then we'd fill it up with like Coca-Cola. So it looked the same. It was like a similar color or something like that. I don't even know if it actually worked, but I remember we just would do that. I remember the first time I did it, I remember just getting this like, really weird sensation through my body I was pretty young I think I was probably like 15 maybe 14 even and then it just kind of made me all hyper and stuff and then and then after that I kind of didn't drink as much because we changed schools and we weren't going to school so we weren't friends anymore and then it was with uh my first girlfriend she was older than me and we went to this house party and she's like oh and she was very proud of like being able to drink like she was in year I think she was in year 11 I was in year 10 or something and she was really proud about how much she could drink and it was sort of like I wanted to prove myself to her in a way like I'm maybe younger than you but I can still drink and then I remember I was like instead of getting the beers I got the vodka and then I was just totally annihilated because my tolerance was zero right and I was just being <laughs> an absolute disgrace at the party and but I still thought I had a good time so I kind of carried this ritual on of feeling like I needed to drink on the weekends to constitute like me having fun. Like my weekend wasn't good unless I was getting blasted with my friends on the weekend. You know, it was sort of like, mm. and it was like that FOMO thing where I was like, Oh, I'm missing out on my good young years of like doing this. And so it kind of just carried on and it just kind of kept, kept going as like a habit of like every single weekend and even like weekdays too. Cause I worked at the skate shop after school it kind of became this ritual like skateboarding and drinking is just like a classic like beers at the skate park kind of thing like that mm -hmm. type of behavior because I was big into skateboarding like back before moving here and stuff so so I guess that's I'm kind of getting a little <laughs> going over time but um that's sort of my beginnings of it was just sort of like high school like kind of trying to fit in alcoholism <laughs> if that makes sense mm -hmm. of that kind of thing and I just really wanted to live this like sort of I just wanted to have this like bad boy image for some reason I don't know why it was just in my head I was like that would be cool like I I don't know what it was like why I wanted to be like that because I inherently my actual nature is not like that but it was like I was railing against myself for all those years growing up I had the worst time in high school like I was the kind of guy that had knew everyone but had like no friends if that makes sense it was like I could go to the party and know and hang out with everyone on a very superficial level but when it really came down to it, it felt like I had no real close friends, if that makes sense. It was like this mm. crap experience of, of high school. Probably due to I was inebriated most of the time I'm interfacing with these people outside of school. So mm -hmm. that might be why as well. So anyways. Talk to me about that sense of I knew all these people, <laughs> but I wasn't friends with anyone. Was there a block there? What do you think that was all about? Were you not letting people in? 
Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure. I, I kind of grew up in like a real like hockey playing jock town and I was quite an arty kind of person at heart. Like obviously because I'm a musician now. At the time, I I just don't think I knew who I was. So I didn't know what to offer people. So every time I would hang out with someone, it was on a really, I wasn't really being my true self. I was kind of being this like character of what I thought these people were going to want me to be, if that makes sense. So it, was, it wasn't necessarily an authentic, true version of who I was. So therefore, I couldn't really get to know anyone because no one actually knew me because I wasn't being me, if that makes sense. Like, so there would always be like a season hanging out with some people and then it would just kind of go off because either I would lose interest because I was like, well, I don't actually don't like these people because I'm not being myself. So I'm not really getting a genuine account with these people, if that makes sense. So, you know, I, I think people still live their lives like that, like to this day where they yeah. live this sort of life of like a, almost like a perceived version of what they think the world should be for them. But it's not mm. actually where your true nature is. Like if you're, like for example, I wanted to be like a dangerous kind of authentic, true person, like badass kind of guy. And really, I was just like a big softy that didn't want to, you know, I just wanted to be like probably a dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but at the time, because you're growing and you don't understand. And maybe I did want to be that at that time. But over time, it's like changed dramatically. And now I look back on that as like a wasted opportunity of like, I really wish I could have been more my true self. And rather than finding it in my like early to late 20s or whatever, kind of found it then. That would have been so much easier <laughs> to live yeah. a life with four great friends rather than being a popular kid in the school. But you don't know anyone. You feel lonely. It's like a weird type of thing. It was almost like a, yeah. So I think a lot of the peer pressure was the drinking was because of that as well. Because it was like, I felt like I had sort of a reputation in the school as like a cool dude or whatever. So I wanted to kind of like drink the most or carry my own weight of this persona that I had that I thought I, you know, but really it was just a bunch of bullshit. So it was sort of this, yeah, it's like a biggest regret. It's funny because like in school you get wrapped, wrapped up in that. But if I could do it again, I would have just said, forget it. I'll just hang out with like some authentic people. And they were all there. Mm-hmm. They were all there hanging out, but I just ignored them because they didn't have that sense of, uh, I guess it's like a power thing, right? It's like you're, like if you go to school, I feel like being at school is the, probably the closest thing people will get to going to prison without actually going to prison. Because mm-hmm. this institution where you're all hanging out and you kind of have your groups of, of people and sort of gangs of people that you kind of associate with. Maybe this has changed now because I went to school in like the 90s or whatever. But but it was sort of like that kind of thing. And you kind of stuck to your groups and it was sort of this like way to, I don't know, navigate like the mental stress of of having no friends or feeling left out or that kind of thing like that was like a really big thing right so anyway so I get to relive it all again with my kids <laughs> yeah, teach them the the right, the right way to navigate it so yeah but anyways yeah well it makes a big difference too if someone can see what's going on for us I'm curious a little bit now about that the sense of you that kind of kept the guard up that didn't let people in what were you mostly scared of what was the because usually there'd be a bit of fear holding you there what were you afraid of do you think well, I think I think it was like a, a lack of like confidence. Mm-hmm. So like it was sort of like I'm me myself, like as my natural self is definitely not good enough for these cool people. Mm-hmm. Like that's not going to cut it. So I need to be larger than life or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. that is it couldn't be further from the truth because fundamentally those people that I was associating with all ended up living these 
pretty horrible lives like down the track and it was sort of this yeah it was like i think we were all doing the same thing essentially all trying to live out this almost like it was almost like a fantasy or something yeah it was like it's like yeah yeah Mm. so and i think the thing was was it was like almost like a survival instinct to navigate that space and and i think my school was a bit on the rougher side maybe i'm starting to think now because i'm comparing my uh, high school experience to my fiance Celeste's experience and it's very different like Mm -hmm. from rural country australia to kind of vancouver sort of outside of the city where you have like 2,000 or 3,000 kids at a high school and Mm -hmm. it's like you're it's so big that you kind of just get lost in it you know and I feel like it's pretty tough for for kids to navigate that kind of thing and you know there's a lot of like like there was a lot of like kind of Asian gangs and like kind of violence and a lot of drugs and stuff and it was sort of a weird a weird thing a weird thing you don't really hear about in Vancouver but there's like a huge drug and alcohol problem in Vancouver like massive yeah like I'm gonna say like one of the biggest in the world without a doubt it has to be yeah well um, I remember driving through Vancouver and it would always amaze me going through this one section where there was just all these homeless people like it was like a whole town like a city and yeah. I remember being so shocked because that's not what the idea mm. of Canada is. Mm. And then, of yeah. course, Gabor Mate talking about his work down there in the Lower East Side, is it? Yeah, and... that's that spot. It's gotten mm. even bigger. Like, it's gotten way, way, way worse. Like, mm. I'll put it this way. It's like, I know this is an alcohol thing, but I feel like addiction's addiction in a way. Yeah. And out of all my friends that, I, well, I guess they were friends. I'll do air quotes with this. But when I left vancouver there was a guy going to play like triple a hockey there was my friend's band that i left that were all just like doing the music thing and then when i returned it was like every single one of those friends was either in rehab like active rehab for fentanyl and like opiate addiction or Mm. were like on the streets like literally Mm. junkies and i was like how is that possible that we have these different walks of life we have like the star leader of the hockey team the coolest guy gets a knee injury, boom, on opioids. And then we have the musician Artie crowd all in the same boat. And I'm like, this is wild. It was like the most, (laughs) it's like the only thing that doesn't discriminate definitely is addiction for sure. Like, and anyway, so it was a real eye opener for me when I saw that. It was sort of like, you you went away for five years and I was like, I just couldn't believe what had like occurred to people that I was pretty close with at the time. It was just weirdest experience, like going back and just, saying oh what have you been up to it's like oh i've been an addict for five years like what like it's sort of like you just don't realize yeah so i guess that's the real deep end of of that type of thing even though i feel like alcohol in some ways can be as destructive or more than some of these other substances i think people underrate how dangerous alcohol is especially i feel like especially australian society my god if i have my one gripe with australia i love this country i think people here are the most beautiful kind transparent honest people ever but they got this real lean on alcohol validating an experience like we got smashed at christmas it was great it's like what like why mm-hmm. why are you getting smashed at christmas or like oh we like went out to the lake and we got drunk and it was so great and it was like well going to the lake probably would have been great anyways you know but it's sort of like this thing of like nothing better than like a bunch of beers and me sitting with my fishing rod like that's the pinnacle of life for you like that's you can't you know what I mean like it just feels so it's kind of sad it's sort of like you need this crutch like the baby needs its bottle yeah at like age 60 you know what I mean 
anyway. I guess it's just the that's the cultural norm. And, yeah. and even like you said, like growing up, I have this with grown adults now, like, and no judgment, but feeling like they haven't had a good weekend unless they got shit faced. Just how, like you said, like you felt yeah. like you hadn't had a good weekend unless you got shit faced. But it, it, it still keeps carrying through unless you change that and be able to see, wow, I can actually have a good weekend without getting shit faced. I can feel mm. good about myself. I don't need to get shit faced. But I guess it's like a, a badge of honor that. It yeah, starts from yeah. a young age, just like you. It starts at a young age where we're just like, yes, that's the marker of a good weekend is how shit face I got or how much I managed to drink on that weekend. And mm. unfortunately, yeah, we need to start changing that, especially for our kids. Oh, big time. Mm. Like I kind of try to drill into my kids that alcohol is just, uh, it adds no value to an experience whatsoever. Like if anything, it just sort of dims the lights. Yeah. on life a bit you know like when it comes down to it like a first obviously a chemical reaction is pretty fascinating in your body when you're young and you it's pretty exciting like when you're mm-hmm. first doing it but then when it becomes like a like a social crutch where you can't socialize without it that's mm-hmm. one thing I noticed it was sort of a thing well actually even with the stage I was getting this habit of just having a few drinks before stage like a lot of artists do to take the edge off you know yeah. It takes the edge off. But what I found was like if I took the edge off before the show, I felt like I was a little less in control and I wasn't feeling the crowd like emotionally like I normally would be able to. And then after that, for some reason, I noticed this real pattern of me getting trashed after the show. Mm-hmm. And it was like this thing of like every time I did that, I would kind of want to get going after. It was like the booze was already in my system. And then once the show was over, I was like, oh man, let's like, let's go. Like, let's do, mm-hmm. let's go out and get a few drinks kind of thing. This was like sort of early in my touring career, I guess. And then mm-hmm. I found like, oh, it just kind of, I don't know. Well, actually there was a real definitive point. So I'm kind of rambling. Do you want, do you no, want to go. ask me a question? No, no, go, please. <laughs> I'm just, I'm like having a therapy session here with you. Like, I, I feel like there was a real defining point where I did a, a European tour before covid i did one drunk and i did one sober in the same year Mm. and the one i was drunk i remember just it was just it felt like the tour was so hard like it was such a slog Mm -hmm. and then the sober one it was like almost like it was the best like i i just felt so grateful for being able to tour and and be able to just be in that position and it was almost like i could actually take in the experience and it was like when i was drunk it was like i was muted like it wasn't it's almost like it was like a dream. Like it wasn't a real thing that actually happened. It was like so fuzzy. And I thought about it. I'm like, it's like literally taking away years of my life. Not like I'm going to die or literally like I can't feel the the experience enough. Mm-hmm. So it's like I go do something. And if I drink, I'm like, I'm not actually doing it. It's not actually me. It's like this mm-hmm. sort of numbed version of myself. And it becomes this thing where I'm like losing valuable time and valuable experiences that I would otherwise fail to remember for the rest of my life kind of thing. You yeah. know, that's kind of how I kind of looked at it. And I'm like, I don't have any time to waste doing that anymore. Cause it just, it clearly is far less value for me personally. It doesn't matter who it is. It's like, whether you're a musician, whether you're just everyday person, just people, it is a numbed version of ourselves. And we're doing ourselves such a disservice that we don't realize. We think we're enhancing our experience by drinking, but what we're doing exactly what you just said, where it's a numbed version of ourselves, and we're kind of missing out on so much life 
when we're there, that version of ourselves. I guess, though, it takes a while to figure out why we're numbing ourselves. Mm. You know? And some people think, yeah. oh, well, I'm not numbing. I'm just having a good time. I'm not numbing. It's just this habit I've got myself into. But there's something usually there for us that's it's doing something for us. What was it doing for you? So at first it was helping you. Well, actually, I don't think we got to that, Garrett. So there's a part of you that felt like I'm not good enough. Mm. As soon as you said that, not good enough, my ears prick up because I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's just so prevalent with people that have alcohol issues. Firstly, where did not good enough come from? This is too personal. That's fine. That's okay. No, no, no. But um, where did item not good enough come from? Well, I guess I had like, I had a pretty tricky childhood, like, as far as like my parents separated at age seven and the separation was pretty emotionally immature, I would say, like for their age group. And they were very sort of like, it was almost like if your parents were young teenagers separating, it was a similar kind of drama and like kind of creating this real uh, chaos. And like, it was just life was just spiraling for everyone, really. You know, everyone was broke after the separation. Like it was like lawyers were the only one making money, really. And we kind of, yeah, we just sort of, I don't know, I guess from that, maybe I kind of realized like later on down the track that maybe I felt like I was like that there was something inherently wrong with me because of like all these things that happened. Like it was almost like I was like a impure version of myself or something because my parents had had this crazy experience and then as you get older you realize everyone's lives are kind of fucked so it doesn't really matter (laughs) but you know and it was sort of this hidden aspect of myself like I was always really embarrassed about like my parents being separated and that whole scenario and it was like this kind of like I guess a lot of kids have it they have their public life which is when they go to school they put Mm -hmm. on the brave face and stuff but then they have this private life where you know maybe it's like their mom crying every night or whatever it is like who knows it could be different things for everyone but it kind of, I think, maybe stemmed from that of just the instability of that scenario happening when I was in quite a developing age. Yeah. That I felt like kind of the world was like felt kind of unsafe at that time and things were crazy. Dad had a new young girlfriend and things were, you know, they're having parties. There was these like young people around and everyone was drinking. And I guess I'm kind of unpacking this right now, to be honest with you. And it felt like, yeah, it was like this, it was just chaos, really. It felt like chaos. And then so maybe that's sort of where it kind of came from. That's that's the only thing I can think Mm of off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. But it was maybe something from those sort of realms of, of, of the lack of feeling safe at that age maybe led to a bit of insecurity later on down the track. Yeah. It's probably where it kind of. And you sort of get into protection mode. Um, yeah. from that yeah, yeah a bit of, okay I'm going to protect myself at all measures yeah and then yeah. also perhaps too that okay I'm not going to let them in I'm not going to let them see the real me in case I get hurt yeah yeah totally mm. well yeah you want to stay like kind of safe and then I think when you're left to your own devices sometimes with that like by no means were my parents bad it was like mm-hmm. my dad was a bit of a dick like my dad was definitely had a massive drinking problem when I was a kid you know, he'd come home and while my parents were separating, he'd come and sleep next to me. And I'd be like, man, my dad stinks. It smells like booze. And we'd kind of talk about whatever. And I'd be like, as a kid, I didn't really clock it. And I was like, my dad's sleeping next to me. This is not good. I was more like, oh, this is cool. Like, this is this is my dad's sleeping in my room. This is awesome. You must like me. <laughs> it was kind of like, that's how I thought of it, you know. But in hindsight, I was like, oh, that's a, that was a sign. But yeah, so that's kind of, I don't know, I guess. And there's been alcoholism in my family for a long time. Like my Japanese grandpa, he was just drunk like all the time. Every time I'd see him, he was drunk at any family event. He was drinking beer, but he had had a lot of pain, I think, because he had 
that his dad was abusive to him. And he, and during his teenage years, he was in a World War II internment camp, being like stuck in this camp. That's where he met his wife or my grandma. And they kind of had this life that was like ripped away from them. So I can imagine there was a lot of trauma from that of just mm-hmm. being persecuted as these sort of, you know, enemies of the states, you know, at that age, while there's a world war going on, it'd be super intense. So there would have been that whole thing going on. So I guess, yeah, it's probably been passed down. It's like a family heirloom (laughs) passed down through generations. I think every family is the same though. Like I don't think that anything that my life has experienced is by any way abnormal. Now that I'm like older, I feel like it's just it's almost standard procedure in people's lives like everyone has these massive things even if it's not a massive thing it can still be a big thing like it could be something as small as like your dad just wasn't an open person and didn't talk to you and he just was quiet and you always thought he thought you were not good enough for something just something as simple as that maybe your dad's just shy so it it doesn't have to be like full-on abuse or some crazy thing for it to really affect people, I think that's that's my uh, my thought process. Definitely it just depends 100%. on the person. Yeah. Yeah. So no, you don't. Again, you don't have to answer this. Something just pricked my ears up too when you said that. Oh, Dad's here. He's sleeping next to me. He must like me. Hmm. Yeah. This is what part of you did you ever feel like Dad didn't like you before that? Um. Well, no. Oh, uh, yeah. He was a mysterious guy. Like when I was mm-hmm. growing up, like he'd take business trips to Japan all the time just leave come back and then you know i remember like he, he would just hang out with his japanese business partners and they'd get all drunk and have mm-hmm. like you know like he would hang out with like these multi-millionaire kind of dudes and they were these japanese business dudes that were like bad dudes you know? and and the women in japanese culture are treated that's one thing i don't like about japanese culture is they treat women so badly like it's unbelievable they treat them like they're uh just as good as like a baby vending machine or something like Mm -hmm. they don't hold the female spirit or any of that stuff to value and it drives me nuts now like looking back but i could see why maybe my mom was like i've had enough this is too much you're hanging out with your japanese business dudes acting like a big shot and here i am trying to take care of these kids and you know it was sort of like that kind of scenario so i guess when i was a kid he just wasn't around so Mm -hmm. That was probably the big thing. I was like, oh, he likes me because he's spending time with me. And, and we all know as parents now, like the most precious thing you can give a kid is your time, not a toy or anything. Yeah. If you give him your time, that's the only thing that is of value to them from you. Yeah. So yeah, that was probably right. the big thing. So mm-hmm. it sounds like a little bit from like little Garrett had this kind of little sense of himself that perhaps he wasn't likable because of that situation going on with dad, like deep deep down I'm talking not like Mm, so then for sure getting into school okay I'm not good enough for them they might not like me I'm gonna protect myself a little bit here I'm not gonna let them see the real me and so there's been this protection there for a long time then alcohol comes in and allows you to fit in so to speak so you'd sort of see it like your your little buddy the alcohol and yeah there we go (laughs) yeah why does yeah I think it's almost like a thing of like I think humans are very habitual too like maybe you have one night where you have something quite extraordinary happen to you. I don't know. Maybe you hook up with some chick or something like that at a party and you've been drinking. You're like, oh, drinking is the common denominator of this awesome thing when I'm like going through puberty and my hormones are going crazy. And like, 
this kind of mm-hmm. equates to this type of reward thing you know yeah. what i mean yeah and i think that's like where p- people probably get hooked on that kind of thing as well where there's a secret reward at the end of this drinking tunnel that you're gonna get whether it's like that type of thing or or having just a good time with your friends that it's like how many people would probably say like the best times of their lives have been like out drinking with their friends kind of thing but when they're on their deathbed they're probably not thinking about those times mm-hmm. do you know what i mean they're not probably thinking oh i wish i got trashed with my friends more <laughs> they're probably not thinking that you know so it's this funny thing or maybe they are who knows i guess it depends who they are but i feel like there's so many instances where it's almost like a trick. It's like you get tricked. And society makes you feel like when I, I remember even when I got out of high school, I was at, there was a really defining moment actually I had where I went out to this club. It was like the shittiest club. It was like one of those like, you know, they're pumping 50 cents and like these crappy songs. And I was just like, what am I doing here? And I was like looking around and everyone was just getting wasted. And I was just like, you know what? I think I'm just going to catch a cab home. I said the Irish goodbye. And I just like got out of there. I remember sitting in the cab feeling so conflicted of like, I just left. Am I a loser? What am I doing? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, and I thought to myself, like, I really hated being there. I hated everything about it. Because I think I had think I was having one of those nights where I was drinking, but I couldn't get drunk. I don't know if you guys have ever had Uh, that. Mm -hmm. And you just feel kind of tired. It's like your body's like, I don't want to do this. Like, I'm not doing this. Like, we're we're done. And I was just like, no, come on, we can do this. Like, we're going to do this. And I felt Mm -hmm. like no matter how much I drank, I was just feeling tired and sluggish pretty much and then i remember just leaving and being like why do i do this like i kind of had this moment in the cab by myself of like why am i doing this like why am i going out to this club i don't even like super loud music and lots of people around me i'm not really i don't really like that and it was just this realization of like i don't know who i am like at all it was like i was by myself in this club Mm. thinking like what am i doing and then the cab ride home it was almost like it was like a weird feeling between victory and defeat because it felt like I got mm-hmm. defeated because I wasn't cool enough to like want to fit in at this point. But then at the same time, it was like a huge victory because it was like it was like you're free from the chains of this obligation that is mm-hmm. invisible. Like it's like a obligation I put on myself to fit in with these people. But I'm like, I don't give a shit. So it's like this weird uh, mm-hmm. mixture of feelings of like, oh, I you know, it's almost like I mourned the loss of who I thought I was and then basked in the light of who I really am, which was a yes. nice experience. <laughs> it's so, so true. But I think we have that dichotomy. I remember we have it all the time. Like even recently I was whinging to Ash because I didn't get invited to this party that was happening. But then I said to him, but I'm also glad too because I actually don't want to go. Like I don't want to be at this party, but I'm also a bit pissed off and hurt that I wasn't invited to it. It's like yeah. there's two parts of ourselves that show up it's like in one one Mm. part it's like the acceptance then also versus that kind of fighting against what is uh, as well yeah it's I think it's real I think we all have that all the time yeah (laughs) it's so weird Mm. yeah it was a very potent version of that on that cab ride home but then that was that that was the turning point for me for sure I think I probably didn't drink after that for a bit and I started focusing more on music and Mm -hmm. you know and that kind of thing because I found that alcohol for me in my music career it was always it never helped ever it always mm-hmm. slowed me down with creative creative processes like you know you hear about like the, the writer that gets drunk and writes the most amazing novel and blah 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 like i think that's a lot of bullshit i think that that guy just got lucky maybe because i don't think that being drunk motivates you to do anything same with weed or any of that stuff and it also kind of dulls down like 
the sense of who you truly are when you're expressing mm. yourself. I feel like you kind of get this like sort of maybe more pretentious version, right? Because you're not really digging into yourself more when you're on these substances. Mm. You're like putting a big mask on. You're not actually unveiling anything. That's that's just my theory on it. But so from a creative standpoint, I found that alcohol and drugs just never helped me whatsoever. It was always like the almost the opposite, if that makes sense. It makes you wonder, Ash and I talked about this once, maybe on the podcast, I can't remember, but we're talking about Jimi Hendrix, one of his idols, and mm. how Jimi relied on, he would say, the drugs and the alcohol would help him get to that place to create. And mm. Ash was saying, I wonder what it would have been like had Jimmy not lost his life. And if he had have ever got sober, what if there was this whole, like, what if there was more to Jimmy than what we got? This whole explosion of Jimmy that could have happened, perhaps, where people think that they have to be drunk to get to these places within themselves. But actually, we're holding so much back because it's such a polarized version of ourselves. Do you oh, know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think, like, the only thing that I learned from Kurt Cobain and Jimmy and all those guys is like they're like manuals to to like kill yourself basically Mm -hmm, like you mm -hmm. know what I mean like maybe they lived like these extraordinary finite lives but at the end of the day like what they what they end result was was so tragic like yeah but what they were capable of like they were capable of creating such amazing music but there could have been so much more yeah totally 100% if they weren't like and you, you know what I think too like Jimi Hendrix okay I feel like we're reading from the press release when we're talking about him sure think yeah. about Jimi Hendrix no one gets as good as he does at guitar without being the kid that sits in his bedroom and plays for fucking hours and hours right. yeah and just sits in there and he's not drunk when he's doing that yeah he's the kid you know he's the Tiger Woods of guitar do you know what yeah. I mean that guy yeah. would have spent like he would have been like a religious monk for the Buddha with that guitar. Yeah. You know, that would have yeah. been his life, his whole identity wrapped up in that one skill. And I feel like to put it down to, I could only play guitar well. Cause I'm fucked up. is fucking bullshit. Cause like, there's no way, there's no yeah. way someone gets that good by being drunk all the time. Like that's like the later years in his life after all the hard work's been done, mm-hmm. in my opinion. that he puts this thing of like sprinkles and i think the the thing was back then this is my theory people used drugs and alcohol to make themselves seem bigger than life in other words i get drunk and fucked up i don't know what's happening i'm channeling things like a god for example you could never do this do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. what i get from that it's sort of like a protection thing like what I've created is something you'll never be able to do because I was messed up and it's like an unhumane thing that I've done. Like it's like beyond human capabilities kind of thing. But really mm. it's just a guy playing guitar like a crazy dude in his room. His mom's like cooking dinner. Like, Jimmy, come down. I need to cook dinner. Can you stop playing guitar? That's where Five the genius minutes. is coming Five from. Five more minutes, mom. Yeah, that's yeah. the genius without a doubt. It's not this crazy, you know, that's my opinion. Like I feel like that was totally. branding to make all those iconic 60s artists seem like they were gods, not just regular humans that put a lot of hard work into their instrument and made these beautiful songs. Yeah, to get that good at anything, you have to do thousands and thousands and thousands of yeah. hours of practice. Yeah, it's yeah. not because of how much they drank. I remember Scott Owen from The Living End, that's who we quit with originally, and he was telling us about 
Chris Cheney. I hope it's okay for me to talk about Chris. <laughs> Sorry, Chris, but it's good stuff. But he just said, like, the guy, because they've known each other since they were young, just mm. hours and hours and hours and hours of practice in his room. And then on the tour bus as well, just constantly he's playing guitar constantly. And that's why the guy rips. <laughs> it's because mm. he just yeah. hours, hundreds, thousands of hours of practice on guitar. Yeah. So, yes, you get to understand. Look, Ash has had the same thing too, where just his music improves so much. Everything improves so much. And one thing that Ash said as well was not because he just stopped drinking and suddenly he got better, because all that spare time he had, he started playing guitar, getting more singing, mm. you know, getting vocal coaching, like working on his craft rather than just sitting around getting pissed all the time. Mm. Hundreds it's of hours. such a time waster because it's not only... Well, like some in my 30s now, so it's not really a it's not just a one night thing, it's not just a hangover thing. Like, even the next day after the hangover day, I'm still foggy, and I can kind of use that as an excuse to not maybe do something, it, even like go to the gym or you know, just do play with my kids, like just mm -hmm. do things that are needed in life. Like, I feel like it turns you into a child almost. Actually, you know what it really turns you into. It kind of turns you into someone with like an illness, like a, like a proper illness, like of someone that's like has like a autoimmune disease or something. <laughs> right. When because, we're hungover, do you mean? Yeah. 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 Because mm. you're essentially like poisoned every second day. Like if you're an actual alcoholic and your life equality is so low, you're like you volunteered, not that you deserve to be in that situation, but it's like a, a man-made version of like an autoimmune disease that's really bad for you, you know, yeah. shortens your life and makes you operate so poorly in day-to-day -day life. So it's this mm -hmm. thing. It's sad, isn't it? And to think for someone to get themselves into that state where I think about myself, certainly not at alcoholic level, but what I must have been going through to want to numb myself out to that level to even tolerate feeling like that the next day. Like some hangover days were just fucking horrendous yeah. you know it just yeah yeah i can't do anything like and the anxiety and the, the vomiting and all that stuff that would happen and yet i accepted that yeah why why because i was unconfident because i wasn't mm. confident enough to be around people as i was so i would like oh god think about that garrett and i just feel so sad yeah. sad for that version of myself and oh gosh it's, it's awful yeah well I feel like it's just this thing like in some ways and thankfully this didn't really happen to me but I can imagine some people wake up and then they just look around and then they see like this life that is is now the reality maybe they're in their 40s or 50s or something and they're like so this is it this is my life it was just one long weekend you mm -hmm. know of getting plastered and it's like mm -hmm. That would be such a crushing blow to have to feel like that's what you've amounted to was like a bunch of good weekends or something, you know, like that. It just was this sort of messy type of thing. But I also I think like people that actually have proper drinking problems are definitely not. A, it's not a proud scenario. Yeah, it's a tough one. I think it's easier to be an alcoholic probably in Australia than a lot of other countries, I feel like socially, mm. where it's like it's not a huge issue maybe it's maybe it's where like where i've been and like where i've toured to or like certain people i've brushed up shoulders with but i feel like it's just it's very much more accepted like for like the woman right for example to have like a whole bottle of wine while she cooks dinner every night mm -hmm. and it's just like this kind of joke it's like haha 
need my wine. Like, oh, it's just so crazy. I got kids. I need my wine. It's just like, that's like, no, that's like a pro. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. not like a funny little like birthday card. Like, that's like a problem. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and I feel like there's so many, um, well, I guess it's probably alcohol companies is probably the first culprit that really want to make it seem like casual alcoholism is just no worries like it's mm -hmm. all good it's just normal and i'm like i guess we are coming around now though people are kind of waking up to the fact that it's like you're getting tricked as mm -hmm. how much money the, the government makes off the tax of the alcohol not to mention the alcohol companies like um i was saying this to a friend the other day where i felt like you know how you go to a festival like splendor right Mm -hmm. and you look at all the headliners and you see all the music and stuff but i always think the real headliners is always like the beer and alcohol companies mm -hmm. like that's why a lot of these people are there they're there to get drunk they mm -hmm. have a good time you know and the music is like a the court gesture at the feast if that makes sense it's mm -hmm. like a side thing mm -hmm. and i always think that like there obviously are people that love music and go to festivals still but i feel like there might have been a tipping point like a few years ago where festivals of those types those types those kind of coachella-esque festivals turned into more of like a image perceived thing and like a substance abuse kind of haven where it's mm. like that was the uh the mo you know it wasn't about like music if that makes sense so yeah but, but anyways that's i don't know that's my two cents on on that i guess <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So tell me a bit more about yourself. So where did it get to with you with the drinking before you decided to pull it back a little bit? How did it evolve for you? Yeah, like I kind of went through a weird time where it was sort of like me and my partner or my fiance Celeste were kind of like enablers of each other a little bit. like, And we kind of got into this habit of drinking like a few drinks every night kind of thing. This was like pre-kids. And it was sort of like that's kind of how we met. We were living in a share house together and it was like, this sort of like drinking was like a thing that we were just, we would just do, I guess. And then that kind of just snowballed into like this habit of like, you know, you watch a movie and drink, you know, or something like that, like just really mundane activity with alcohol. And then, then I remember thinking like, Oh, this is kind of weird. Like, why am I getting, you know, having like six beers and like just doing nothing? That was like a big thing. I remember it was like wine was a big one too. Like I think wine is a sneaky one because it's such a high alcohol percentage and you don't have to consume like you know mm -hmm. to get through a bottle is like not that tough for one person really like as far as actual consumption like you have like four glasses of wine right if they're pretty steep glasses you're done so it's like yeah so there was sort of this and it was like a looming type of thing like it was never serious enough to derail our lives completely or anything like that but it was this hum of like it was just a, a constant so and then it was up until that, basically that tour where I did it sober that I kind of just slowly weaned off alcohol completely. And then um, my partner was still kind of drinking like sort of the regular amount that we would drink. And then eventually she just kind of thought, oh, this is pointless. Like, I don't want to do this by myself. I'm not going to do it. And it was sort of nice. And then since then we've cut it off and my partner, Celeste, she's been like sober for two years now. We'll have to get her on. Yeah, I'd love to. She's yeah. She's got a great story with it because she was raised in the country. So alcohol was just very abundant in that culture. Mm. Right. And she's just such a champion. But anything she sets her mind to, she's just going to smash it out of the park. That's just who she is. Very inspiring person. That. But yeah, but it was never like a huge. Maybe I just didn't look at it that way. It probably was. But I didn't look at it as like a huge monster to overcome. It was just more of like a. Bitch. Like a. 
yeah and more like a regret of like oh i wish i didn't i wish i caught on to this earlier like i wish i just didn't kind of fall into this the, the society kind of expectation trap if that if you want to call it that i don't know how to explain it you know like the, the normality of it but it's not normal yes but yeah. you don't feel weird doing it like there's no guilt there's no like because everyone does it yeah, everyone does it. So you, you don't think you'll ever regret it either. And that's like one of the big regrets I have is like, I wish I experienced like my first few years in Australia and out of high school and all that stuff, just less drunk, like just mm-hmm. not just relying on that to cure my social hangups of hanging out with people. Mm-hmm. Like I still feel a bit funny about like, you know, socializing with people sometimes like I, I am more, more and more as I get older. I think it's normal, though, but to keep to myself kind of person. But I definitely feel like I don't feel so much anxiety that I can't just go out to dinner with friends or go out somewhere to a gig and not drink. Like I don't, it doesn't bother me. Was alcohol for you, was it covering up any kind of social anxiety? Because I did see something on your TikTok once where you talked about feeling anxious. I can't remember what it was, but like, here's what you can do if you feel anxious at a party. And you went into the bathroom and you kind of stood there and took some deep breaths and sculled heaps normal. Do you know the Mm. TikTok video I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's one of the reasons I want to get you on other than Ash, you and Ash working together and Ash telling you that you didn't drink. But I thought that's brilliant. Was it kind of covering up that kind of bit of social anxiety that you have or that you, that kind of sense? Oh, for sure. Well, I remember I would do, I would do that all the time. I would have this moment. It was almost like I had to do it where I would go into the bathroom and I would like look at myself in the mirror for some reason and be like, you can do this. And I'm like, why am I doing that? Why mm-hmm. am I saying you can do this? Like, what 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 am I doing? Like, I'm supposed to just be having fun, not thinking about it at all. But I had this moment in the bathroom. I would always do it and be like, okay, like kind of like regrouping. It's almost like I was on stage and then the bathroom was like the side of the stage and we're at intermission and we're like, okay, all right, we got this. It's okay. It's like I was performing the whole time or something, you know? If that makes sense. Like, that's like the closest thing I could equate it to. It was just sort of like this massive amounts of energy just getting zapped out of me. For oh, you're an introvert. What? Yeah, for whatever reason. And it was just like, okay, I can get through it. Like, it's going to be okay. You know, and that was sort of my little moment of like being able to just recharge and then go back out there with a smile on my face and like, you know, be nice to the customers or whatever. That kind of, that kind of thing. Do you think you're an introvert? I don't know. I definitely like my own company. Like I'm totally fine with it. Like I don't feel like I need to, like I don't have that urge of like, oh, I need to go and hang out with so-and-so because I feel this way or or like they charge me up or whatever. Like most of the time, like if I'm at a shopping mall or at a gig or whatever, I have this threshold of like three hours. And then after that, I'm like, oh my God, get me out of here. Like I just can't, I can't handle the, uh, the noise and the chaos and my eldest daughter lila she's like that too she just ah. gets to a point where she's like all right let's get out of here because this is this is crazy like i can't it's like when your brain gets overstimulated or something like i find that that happens to me for sure where it's you're like classic mate you're a classic classic yeah. introvert okay and there you go <laughs> yeah, and, and you, you feel zapped when you're around people you, yeah, you yeah 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 mm-hmm. for too long like one-on-one's not too bad or like a focused environment or a calm environment like I always used to like kind of like like if someone's like oh let's go get a drink and I'm like oh let's actually no let's get a coffee like that's what I'll always say like if mm. someone wants to catch up and they're from overseas and they're here for a festival or something in town I would say oh no, let's get a coffee let's not go get a drink because when I think about getting a drink also I think of like 
the really loud like pub and it's just crazy and i'm like yelling at someone like hey so blah 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 and it's sort of like how am i even talking to you right now but if i go get a coffee with someone or get lunch or whatever even just go for like a cruise somewhere like go check out something cool in nature or whatever it's way more nourishing for both of us and we also can actually catch up yeah rather than like I see you with the drink in your hand and there's a lot of music and like, this is great. I haven't seen you in ages. And like, that's it. I just don't think that's a catch up really. That's just like a, like a formality almost. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you feel like then that the alcohol was masking a little bit of that social anxiety or whatever it was that was showing up for you? Do you feel like it was masking those feelings? I think it was like, for example, you know how I was saying like, I had like that three hour limit or whatever. I think it was like almost like like the drug was able to get me to that next level of I can do this. Like I can tolerate more because I'm not feeling my emotions and my sensitivity is like way down because mm-hmm. of the alcohol. So I could kind of just carry on. But if it was me sober, I would have said, oh, cool, guys, I've had enough. I'm going to go home, go to um, bed. And that would have been awesome. Like yeah. I still would have had a great time. And I wouldn't do that next three hours. It just gets messy and gross and then feel like shit the next day. Yeah, it's just being able to look back to and see that and see that that actually mm. the alcohol was carrying me through that discomfort mm. and it was taking me somewhere that ends up pretty gross and where I don't actually don't, don't want to be. So talk to me a little bit about that kind of realising, okay, this isn't actually good for me. It's not helping me. Did you have that realisation or when was that moment where the hammer hit where you're kind of like, this isn't working so much for me anymore? It was like a moment, actually. I think it was like Lila was like four, maybe. And I was hungover. And I I felt actually like unable to take care of my kids pretty much. Like I was like, I'm not being a good dad. Like I am Mm -hmm. being a piece of shit right now. And Mm -hmm. I was like, what am I doing? It was like this moment of kind of like I always kind of thought, oh, my life's going to be like this when I'm older kind of thing. And then I kind of had this flood of this is it. This is your fucking life right now. And right now you're hungover on the couch and your daughter's asking for like some food or whatever. And you're like so hungover that like you feel like you can't even do it. It's like you're at a job just to take care of your kids. But meanwhile, it should be this effortless type of thing, which it which Mm -hmm. it normally is. It's this type of thing where you're really hands on with your kids. But in this instance, yeah, I was like, this isn't fair to her. This isn't fair to Celeste. This isn't fair to anyone that I'm like being this really shit version of myself and then that was sort of one of the tipping points where I was like the repercussions of this are so far reaching like way further reaching than just me as an individual like way more so it's not like it was a self that because I didn't want to feel like shit so that was like a huge part of it but then the next part of it was definitely that I didn't want to like hinder the life of my kids and whether that's because my dad potentially too it was like alarm bells rung. I was like, oh my God, I was that kid talking to my dad on the couch. I'm like, and now I'm that fucking dad. Mm. Like, I don't want to be that guy. So I was like, not, not doing this, like, forget it. And I think one of the biggest tests was that European tour, just to see if I could tour without drinking. And it was just so easy. And I was like, well, what is going on? And there was like this whole flood of like, almost like what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast of like, finding your true self and I feel like so long as you're an alcoholic and you drink you'll never know who you are as a human you'll never find yourself you'll never be able to feel how you truly feel about the world almost because you're always 
under the thumb of this like sort of cloud. And it's also like putting ideas in your head that aren't even there. It's anxiety, judgments. Uh, you don't like yourself as much. You have a lot of guilt that you carry around. Like that's what I was carrying the whole time during that. So it turned into this type of thing where it was like, who are you? Mm. That's that's kind of the question I had to ask was like, who are you like actually? Not who do you think you are? Not are you the cool dude that plays music or whatever? Like, no, no, no. Who are you, who are you actually? And you're actually just this dad hung over on a couch right now. So, you know what I mean? Like, So it was like this wake up call. And I think it was a a multitude of a lot of different things. But maybe the first thing was that cab ride was probably the first inkling of like, there's something off about this. And then it kind of, it was like little, almost like breadcrumbs to, Mm -hmm. to, to get, to find my way back home to where I actually was. It wasn't definitely wasn't like one definitive moment, but I can remember certain snippets of time where I've been like, hmm, something's off about like what I'm doing right now, even though it, I, I perceived it as normal at the time mm-hmm. in the eyes of society, I guess. And like the whole us as a human tribe that this is normal. It's OK, you know, get mm-hmm. smashed on the weekend. It's fine. But for me, it was like something's off. Like it just didn't feel right. So that was kind of a real moment for sure was that because it just felt like I was just the guilt was just too much. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And too, to, for people listening, I think it's such a great question to ask, like who actually am I apart from, you know, I'm not my job. I'm not my name. I'm not any of that stuff, but who am I right now in this moment? Like you said, right now, I'm just this hungover fucking guy on the couch. Yeah. 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 Yeah nothing glamorous about it like and nothing to be but also like it's it's there's a lot of power in realizing that too like it's sort of type of thing and you know and I think for people it's it's definitely never too late to just like be like no I'm not doing this anymore like what's like what's the point but I guess it's so complex for a lot of people like I get I get why people get trapped in that because they are it's like a trap right Mm -hmm. like not to mention how much money you waste drinking my god like the amount of money I wasted was just insane. Yeah. It was just, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So I feel like there's just definitely, um, I don't know. There's just so much more, I guess, that I feel like I, I almost feel like I honestly, I'm just kind of speaking off the top here, but I almost feel like I regret that I didn't stop sooner, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like I have this feeling like sometimes where I'm like, man, imagine if I had done this part of my life sober where would I be now you know what I mean Mm. like as far as like a human development like my emotional intelligence probably would have been way higher I would have been able to understand the world better you know like those kinds of things so yeah but I feel like you're developing that now the further and further away you get from your last drink do you feel like the emotional intelligence is getting more for sure just your understanding and even like empathy, right? Like I feel like alcohol kind of drains your empathy. Like say someone is driving really fast and like they're being sort of erratic on the road. I look at that as like, okay, well that person's obviously really stressed out. Like I'm not like you jerk, you're doing this to me. It's like, they don't even know you. They don't even think about you. They're probably thinking they're going to lose their job if they're late for work. You know, it's all them. It's not you. And, but I think if you're drinking all the time, you have this knee jerk reaction, like you're hung over and you're driving to work or whatever, and you that same occurrence happens, you're not even thinking about that person's perspective at all. You're like, that guy's a dick. 
I'm so hungover. I don't want to deal with that. That guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing rather than having this approach of like, you know, that has nothing to do with me. I'm going to work. Like that's dangerous. I don't, I don't like that, but you know, and I'm not going to let it ruin my day type of thing. But if I was hungover, I'd probably let something like that ruin my day because I was so so much more irritable. Like the littlest thing would just like wreck your day. So that's like the repercussions of it. Hey, like you'd just be so on edge all the time just because your body's literally trying to heal itself like throughout the whole day from being poisoned <laughs> so 100%. It's, i yeah. swear to god i wonder i'd love to see the stats with road rage <laughs> and in road yeah. rage incidences if other is the person actually hung over who's committed the road rage offense because it's it's so true and i feel like when our body is in that recovery mode we're kind of in a little bit of that survival so it's all a me 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 it's a bit like that mm. Yeah, and then for sure. As you're healing and recovering and all that stuff, you start to soften, all the edges soften. And so it's not just me, me, me. It's starting to, I don't know, you're getting a wider outlook, perhaps. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. I think it's super. That's one of the biggest things I've noticed. It's like, well, you just you're just not as stressed. As a human, you're just not as stressed. And like mm-hmm. we're gonna operate so much better as humans if we're not stressed. Like if we're dealing with stress all the time, anyways, with our work and stuff. And then we're like, okay, let's let's add some more stress. Let's go to work hungover. Let's do it. Mm. Let's add the extra stress of an already stressful situation. Because, but but it's so funny because we brand it as like, I'm gonna go. Okay, if you could brand it like this, actually, this I find this interesting. I'm just kind of rambling here, but if you could brand it as go to work sick by taking this alcohol, it's like people would be like, I can't afford to go to work sick. I am not gonna do this. But it's like, instead they brand it as like, come home from work and give yourself a treat and relax and drink. But it's like, <laughs> it's the same product. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's right. like, go to work feeling like shit or come home, treat yourself and relax and have like a bunch of drinks. Like, it's such a funny thing because if you were to explain that to someone in those terms, they'd be like, no, I can't do that. Like, why would I do that? Yeah, it's like playing, I... the, playing the tape forward. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, why would I go to work sick? That would suck. I From hate my bottle, work anyways. Right? Well, sometimes if I'm doing coaching with someone, I'll say, you know, what does it actually do for you once you've got through the initial dopamine hit and what's on the other side of it? And it's usually, you know, all the things like shame, regret, remorse, anxiety, all those things. And like, what if you were to see it as a bottle of anxiety or a bottle of remorse? Can, you know, mm. Garrett, do you want a bottle of anxiety? And you'd be like, no fucking thank you yeah you know, totally seeing it for what it really is yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well, it's so true it's like here's this bottle that'll make you sick for work tomorrow it's like yeah what? <laughs> like i'm i know i can't be sick for work tomorrow yeah it's funny anyways yeah the more the more we break it down the more it seems insane the thing i think is like insane is just the amount of like maybe it's just so inherent in our culture but like the fact that like the government and all these places it's kind of okay to be like an alcoholic there's no real federal like repercussions of it unless you like run someone over and kill them or something or drive a a vehicle but just to operate as a as a human in those terms like the government doesn't really get involved did you know what i mean but it's like Mm -hmm. such a bad thing i guess you could go into gambling as well with that but I, i just find it fascinating how it's like probably one of the fundamental issues with like our society is like the fact that families aren't really as nurturing as they could be to raise kids and 
all those kinds of things. And that's like a real cornerstone of a strong sort of civilization, I believe, that you raise your kids good and the kids feel good. And so all these families are being affected by alcohol, but yet it's like such an obvious problem, domestic abuse, all that stuff. But yet they're like, no, we're just like, we're not going to somehow mitigate this. Do you know what I mean? I guess maybe it's a human right thing. I don't know. But if it's a human right thing, then why don't you just let people shoot up heroin? Like, it's like, what's the difference? It's like, you're still getting beyond being even conscious sometimes. So anyways, it kind of baffles me that there's not more strategies, at least, or at least it's not on the agenda, if that makes sense. It's an epidemic. Yeah. It's almost like if America, like you look at America with gun control, and you see mm-hmm. school shootings and you think of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's almost a similar aspect, maybe not as extreme and as violent, maybe, maybe not actually, but with alcohol in Australia, it's a similar kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, well, why don't you just like reduce the alcohol? And like, no, 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 can't do that. I can't take away my guns. I need my oh. guns for protection. Do you know what I mean? It makes a lot of money from alcohol. So yeah, that's, yeah. That's why. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They, they do, hey. It's an irony considering about what we've just been through about those restrictions and everything that was placed upon us because of the public health situation with COVID, yet there's something like alcohol which kills so many people. It's responsible for so many deaths and domestic violence and child abuse and all the rest of it, the plethora of things. Half our jails are full because of alcohol, and yet it's allowed. Yeah, it's Um, so funny. It's such a funny thing, like, I guess it's just one of those things like until I I feel like until people get to the bottom of where it, it is or, you know, or they have that moment on the couch with their kids looking at them like, what are you doing? Um, maybe they probably don't see it the way it is, if that makes sense. So seeing but, it, it's all about seeing it for what it is. Look, that's what can free you from alcohol and free you from the shame of alcohol, too. If, if people feel shame about it, it's actually looking at it and seeing it for what it really is. It's like it's a bottle of anxiety. It's a bottle of domestic violence. Actually, let's get fucking real about this and look at it for what it really actually is and the harm it causes. And, yeah, I mean, look, not for everyone. I I know that some people can just take it or leave it, but there's a lot of harm with it. We'll just leave it at that, I suppose. But, yeah. Mm. So, Garrett, in finishing up, what's the biggest gift do you feel like that taking alcohol out slowly but surely is giving you? I, I think, okay taking alcohol out of my life if I could sum it up being my true authentic self like find out who I actually am it's like that like if you don't take it away you're never going to know yourself you're never going to know what you really like in life like how you want your life to be experienced you won't know because you won't be in control of it so it's like this lack of purpose control of your life like there's just the list goes on but I feel like with alcohol I am just like on autopilot and I'm at the will of of everyone else, if that makes sense. But when I'm not on alcohol, it's like I'm the master of my own universe in a way. It's like I am responsible for all my own actions in a good way, if that makes sense. So it's not a, yeah, so it's, that, that would be my summed up equation of where I've gotten to with it, where I feel that it is it is the most freeing aspect of my life because it's opened up this whole entire world of it's almost like I'm more happy to be who I am without it Mm -hmm. you know because when I was on it it was like I didn't know what I was 
and I was ashamed of what I didn't know what I was, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it was like this, uh, yeah. So I would say in quitting alcohol, finding my true self was like the biggest gift for sure. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. Beautifully said too. Well, Garrett Cato, thank you so much. Um, thank you for coming on the show today and thank you for your music, your beautiful music. And what have you got coming up? Well, I'm actually flying to Perth today. I'm a, I'm, oh. I've been invited to play at a zoo, weirdly enough. Okay. Like a, it's like an acoustic uh, night they put on in Perth for me play at a zoo. So I'm, I'm, it sounds, it actually sounds so sick. I'm actually so excited because I love yeah. animals. So I'm pumped on it. But then after that, I'm releasing new music in the new year and just doing the same old kind of playing music and producing music and enjoying life. So yeah yeah that's so awesome i'm really excited i was listening to the track that you and ash have done together and it's so oh, cool oh i'm so pumped on that track i am actually genuinely like like yeah part-time li spare time listener on that one so yeah, yeah. very <laughs> exciting very exciting track so i can't wait for that to hit people's ears next year mm. anyway garrett thank you so much and again yeah thank you so much for your time and coming on and have a great time in perth and thank you Thank you. <laughs> See ya. See ya. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.